congregation once a year, there was a special feast day for the people of Israel called the Day of Atonement. And there was one moment in that amazing ritual when people would literally hold their breath. And that's when the high priest, stripped of all of his glorious garments, would enter not only in the holy place, but the people knew that he would go beyond the veil and enter into the most holy place, into the place where God himself dwelled in all of his glory. And later on, the people knew what happened to Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who entered the holy place with strange fire. Fire came out from the most holy place and consumed them. And so the priest would enter and he would lift the veil. And why was it that he did not perish? Why was it a matter of such great joy when he would reemerge? When it was obvious that he had been in the very presence of God, but he had not been consumed. And the reason he had not been consumed is what he carried blood with him. He carried with him the blood of the sacrifice. The blood that pointed to the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that shed blood, he, a sinner, a sinful high priest, was able to come into the very presence of God and not be consumed. However, that only happened once a year. For the rest of the year, that veil would not be lifted. But today we commemorate the glorious reality that that veil, that veil that that symbolized separation, That veil that symbolized that a holy God cannot have communion with unholy sinners except in His ordained way. But when the Lamb of God cried out, it is finished. The veil was rent by God's own hand. And the day of the ascension, we commemorate The glorious event that the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he entered into the very heavens, not with the blood of lambs and goats, but he entered into the very presence with his very own blood. He is the one who, as was prophesied in Psalm 24, He is the one when he returned to heaven's glory. He is the one who could give the summons to the gates of heaven. And they obeyed his summons. And those gates yielded and allowed the king of glory to come in. Oh, what a blessed day is the day of the ascension. You know, A friend gave me a quote from Augustine, what Augustine said about the ascension. I want to read that to you. Augustine once said, the ascension festival is that festival, he means feast day, which confirms the grace of all the festivals together, without which the profitableness of every festival would have perished. 
For unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity, his birth, would have come to nothing, and his passion would have borne no fruit for us, and his most holy resurrection would have been useless. And so Augustine understood well that this was the crowning event upon the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was indeed the crowning day of the mediator. And with God's help, we hope to consider that by way of the well-known historical account that we find in the chapter we read to you, Acts 1. Let's read verses 9 through 11 again. And there we read God's word in our text. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so this passage speaks of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, boys and girls, just follow me. Okay? First of all, we will consider the circumstances surrounding his ascension. Our text begins by saying, when he had spoken these things. And we read in verses 3 through 8, everything that preceded this remarkable moment. The circumstances surrounding his ascension. Secondly, the blessed reality of his ascension. In other words, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for the people of God that we have an ascended Christ? And thirdly, the promise conveyed by his ascension. And then, of course, we find that in verse 11. Because that's the promise that the angels spoke to the apostles who kept on gazing into the heavens into which Christ disappeared. The promise that that same Jesus, whom they had followed, that that same Jesus would come in like manner as they had seen him go into heaven. So the circumstances surrounding his ascension, the blessed reality of his ascension, right? It's, it's expressed in the text. He was taken up. He went to heaven. Actually, if you notice, the word heaven is mentioned four times in those three verses. Four times to emphasize that that's where he went. And what is the blessed reality? What is the blessed fruit of that? And thirdly, the promise conveyed by his ascension. And so in verse 3, we're told that Christ showed himself, it says, alive after his passion. Passion is the other word for suffering. By many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. First of all, this indicates to us that Christ appeared far more frequently than is actually recorded in the Gospels. He met with them over and over again. 
And how did he spend those 40 days, that special number in the word of God? He spent those 40 days by speaking to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Congregation, what an unforgettable time that must have been. We know what an impact it had on the men of Emmaus when Christ walked with them, when he opened the scriptures to them, when he showed them that all of those scriptures were about him. These men were overwhelmed. They said, our heart was burning within us when the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, was explaining his written word. That's what happened during those 40 years. During those 40 days. So during those 40 days, are you, what Jesus did, he put the finishing touches on everything that he had taught these men the three years that they walked with him. There are so many things they had not yet understood. But we read in the last verses of Luke 24 that he opened their understanding so that they would understand the Scriptures. Everything came together for them. Finally, they understood the very purpose of the death and resurrection of their master. They finally understood how the entire Scripture testified of that reality. They finally understood that he was the fulfillment of all of those promises. Oh, congregation, I often wonder what that must have been, not just for the men of Emmaus. What must it have been to have the author of Scripture explain Scripture? To have the living word himself explain his own word to these men. That's why when ten days later when the Spirit was poured out upon them, oh, how they testified, how richly they testified of the wonderful works of God, how they could now speak freely about their Savior, their Redeemer, their Lord, who died but rose again, but also who ascended up on high. And yet, as is true for all of us, they were slow learners. Because Jesus had just said to them, you need to go to Jerusalem, you need to wait for the promise of the Father, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And then they said, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? That shows you how very Jewish they were. They could not let go of the idea that Christ would establish that he would restore the kingdom of David and Solomon in all of its glory. That's what they were hoping for. And you would think that after all this instruction, after these 40 days, that they would not even have thought of such a thing. Because Jesus had told them, my kingdom is not of this world. He said it to Pilate. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have come to my rescue. My kingdom is not of this world. But wonderfully, as we see again, Christ does not ream them out. He's very gentle, but he makes the point. He said, it's not for you to know. The times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. So he did not ignore what they said. 
nor did he contradict what they said. The implication is that, yes, God's kingdom will come, but not the way you think. Not by the restoration of the political entity of the kingdom of David. And so Christ clearly indicates again, and congregation, we need to take that to heart, because until this day, there continue to be those in the Christian community that are speculating about the return of Christ. And so many have arisen who have made all kinds of predictions. Think of Harold Camping, proved to be wrong several times. Christ clearly teaches here again, this is not known to us. God has chosen not to reveal that precise moment. But then what does he do? As a a wonderful teacher, after gently rebuking them, after gently correcting them, he refocuses them on the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8, But you shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and and to the uttermost part of the earth. And so Christ refocuses the attention on the Holy Spirit. You know that in that discourse uh, prior to uh, his, on the eve of his suffering, recorded in John 14 through 17, he told them repeatedly, it is expedient for me that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Comforter cannot come. My going away is absolutely essential. Because only when I go away, only when I return unto my Father and your Father, only then will the Comforter come. And you can see that the exalted Christ, who was on the verge of returning to heaven, how he is preoccupied with that promise of the Father, preoccupied with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And why? Why was he so preoccupied with that? Because he knew that that Spirit would render what he had accomplished by his death and resurrection, he would render that fruitful in the hearts of sinners throughout the world. It was through that spirit that what he had accomplished could be applied to the hearts of men. And to the end, he would be exalted so that in his exaltation, Christ would be able to apply the redemption that he had secured in his humiliation. So let me repeat that. Is that as the exalted Christ, he would then apply by his spirit, he would apply what he merited and secured in his humiliation. And then we read that while they're having this conversation, this crowning piece if, if you will, this, this final lesson in the school of Jesus, this final lesson of their theological instruction, while they're having this conversation, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, who are the there? Some commentators believe that just the 11 apostles were here, also in light of of the preceding verses. Others believe that the 500 were there, but I think that's immaterial, how many were there. What's important is that the 11 were there. Of course, number 12 was missing, boys and girls, you know that. You know that Judas Iscariot was missing, of course. But the 11 were there. 
And these 11 men witnessed with their very own eyes, they witnessed the glorious ascension of Christ. And again, it's noteworthy how much emphasis is placed on the fact that they saw it. Look at verse 9. And they beheld. And the Greek word means they looked intently. They, looked, they, were, they were very focused. They beheld as he was taken up. Verse 10. And they looked steadfastly, that same idea, toward heaven as he went up. And when the angels come, he said, Men, why are you stand, Why are you gazing up into heaven? Oh, they, were, they could not take their eyes off of the heavens. They were focused. And so the Holy Spirit, by, by the mouth of, of Luke, goes out of his way to let us know that these 11 men, they witnessed this. They were fully engaged in this. So we have 11 witnesses, at least, who witnessed the physical ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, who physically went from earth to heaven, who ascended in his exalted humanity. So Luther was wrong. Luther, who taught that in his exaltation that the body of Christ became ubiquitous, that means everywhere present. And why did Luther teach that? Because of his teaching on the Lord's Supper. That in and under the signs of the Lord's Supper, Christ is physically really present at at our time. And in order to support that erroneous doctrine, he also taught that the body, the exalted body of Christ became everywhere present. The congregation. Luther should have understood that he undercut his own theology here. Because that would have denied the real and genuine humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even though he was now the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, his humanity was real. That's why he said to the disciples, give me something to eat. They thought it was maybe an apparition. And he showed to them that his humanity was real. Why is that so precious? Because you see... In his glorified humanity, dear believer, he represents us at the right hand of the Father. He is there together with Elijah, together with Enoch and Moses. He's there at the Father's right hand. As we have seen in recent Lord's Days when we considered the qualifications of the mediator, that humanity, that real humanity is so very essential. So here... We, we, we know that the resurrection was witnessed by no one. Maybe not even the guards. No one. That was shrouded in mystery. But of course the resurrection was affirmed intentionally by the repeated appearances of a living Savior over and over again. But this event could not go unnoticed. Lest if Christ would have just vanished... You know what would have happened? They would have doubted his resurrection. They would have said perhaps it was imagination after all. But no, Christ saw to it that these men witnessed his ascend into glory. Because you see, this moment, this was the crowning appearance of all the appearances of Christ. This moment when he led them out of Bethany and when suddenly he began to rise from the earth. 
when he spread out those pierced hands over his apostles, over his disciples, and when he pronounced that high priestly blessing upon them as he ascended into the heavens. And so we know with absolute certainty that the ascension of Christ was a historical event. The congregation, you'd be surprised how many quote-unquote Christians, also theologians, deny the actual ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say in that culture they would have thought he went to the heavens. We are so enlightened because of our scientific know-how, we know that that cannot possibly happen. And what's remarkable is that it says several times he was taken up. Now, when I was a young man, it was for the first time in history that a human being left the earth and actually circulated the earth and came, came down again. I was 20 years old when they stepped on the moon. People had left the earth, but you know what enormous power was needed to lift human beings off the earth. No such thing here. He was taken up. He was taken up by his own power and by his father. And he, as the exalted king, arose in glory and in majesty. And even at this final moment, what's so beautiful is that he's ministering, ministering to his disciples as prophet, priest, and king. Ministering to them as prophet. He spoke he, he left the earth speaking, speaking his word. He spoke to them. He instructed them until the very last minute. He ministered to them as prophet. And he blessed them as priest, the high priestly blessing. And he ascended in absolute glory and in absolute majesty. Because don't think for a moment that Jesus, just as an ordinary-looking man, just started going up. This was a dramatic moment. This was a moment when it was not an ordinary cloud that we see in the sky. This was the glory cloud. The glory cloud, the, the Shekinah cloud, the visible glory of God, the cloud that descended upon the tabernacle, the cloud that descended upon the temple, the cloud that came down on the Mount of Transfiguration. A cloud that was made up of thousands and thousands of angels. How do we know this? Well, there are two remarkable prophecies in the Psalms about the ascension. Psalm 47, verse 5. What do we read there? It says, and listen to the language. Remarkable. God is gone up with a shout. God. The divine, the divine nature, God is gone up with his shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. And in the next verse, verse 18, is that prophecy about the, uh, the ascension. Psalm 68, verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. And how do we know? How, do, how can we be, be scripturally sure, even in light of these prophecies, that he was surrounded by thousands of angels and that he went up with the sound of a trumpet? Well, in verse 11, 
the angels tell us that he will come back the same way he went up. And what did Jesus say repeatedly about his return? Let me just read a few passages to you. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Matthew 24, 30, 31. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Mark 8, verse 38. He cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The angels who came back to speak to these disciples said, the same way you've seen him go up, that's how he's coming back. So this was a, this was a dramatic moment. This was a moment of extraordinary splendor. This was a moment that marked the crowning of the mediator. He ascended in all his glory, surrounded by his ministering servants. With the blowing of a trumpet, God went up with a shout. He ascended as the King of Kings. He ascended as the Lord of Lords and returned to his Father's presence. That brings us to our second thought, the blessed reality of that ascension. What does this mean redemptively? What does this mean for the believer? What does this mean for the people of God? First of all, what it meant, congregation, his return, it meant mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. In the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God descended from heaven into the manger of Bethlehem. Ultimately, he descended into hell itself. Why? Because he came to save hell-worthy sinners. And so that's why he descended into hell itself. And now that he has accomplished his redeeming work, now he is ascending, returning to the very heaven from which he came. That's why Paul, I already partially quoted it in Hebrews 9 verse 12. Beautiful words. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. And then listen to these words, dear believer, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So not only is the resurrection the warranty of your redemption. No, the ascension of Christ is the warranty of your redemption. Oh, by his ascension, we have the absolute certainty, dear believer, that your Savior has obtained everlasting redemption for you. He descended for your sake, but he's also ascended. Ah, that's the beauty of it, you see. Because also in his exaltation, he continues to be our mediator. As our mediator, he became like unto us. As our mediator, he went to the cross. As our mediator, he was made a curse. 
As our mediator, he was nailed to the accursed cross. As our mediator, he endured the wrath of God. As our mediator, he descended into hell. But also in his exaltation, everything he did, he did as our mediator. He arose as our mediator, and he brought us out of the grave, if you will. Oh, his resurrection is the warranty of the spiritual resurrection of every sinner for whom he died. And so when the Spirit of God made you alive, he made you alive based on what your mediator accomplished in his resurrection. But as mediator, as mediator, he has also carried you into the very presence of God. Oh, what an amazing thought. As he ascended on high, dear believer, he carried you with him. He carried you with him into the very presence of his Father. In him, we already are there. In him, we have been restored into God's favor. In him, we are at the right hand of God. And that's why you will once be there. Because where the head is, the body must be. The body shall follow because the head has gone before us. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 6, And hath raised us up together, listen to this, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think of that, dear believer. Think of that. In Christ, you are seated at the right hand of God. You are so near to God in Him. That's why John could write, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our propitiation. Oh, in His glory at the Father's right hand, He is face to face with His Father. And you know what's so beautiful? When the Father looks upon the face of His Son, He sees your face, dear believer. He sees the face of every single one for whom Christ gave himself as a ransom in the fullness of time. He sees your countenance. You are there, represented by your exalted mediator. Oh, what a moment that must have been when he returned into the presence of his Father. And those doors, as I said, oh, when those doors had to yield, Oh, those doors had to yield to the everlasting King, the Lord of hosts. Those doors could not remain closed. And he entered victoriously. What a reunion that must have been. If you have children that live far away from you, as I do, some of you do, what a special moment it is when you visit them, when you embrace them, when there is a reunion when there is a reaffirmation of that very special bond that you have with your children. And that pales what that must have been for the father to receive his son and for his son to return to his father and for his son to come and say, Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Oh, when he said, Father, Glorify thou me with thine own self, 
with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so what does that all mean? What does that mean? That embrace, the Father's embrace of his only begotten Son, not only, no, the Father's embrace of that mediator. Ah, you see, as he embraced his Son, reverently speaking, upon his return, oh, the Father, as it were, wrapped his arms around you, dear believer, in him. That's what it means. You see, the ascension is the reversal of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, that tragic moment. Because you see, Adam and Eve dwelt in paradise. And you know what paradise was? Paradise was literally heaven on earth. That's where they enjoyed, Adam and Eve enjoyed communion with God in the cool of the day. That's where God revealed himself to Adam and Eve. That's where they would hear him every day. They could hear the presence of God approaching But when they sinned, they were expelled. And what does the last verse of Genesis 3 tell us? When they left the garden, the doors of heaven went shut. And that gate was guarded by two angels, two cherubims with a flaming sword of fire, barring the way back into the presence of God. And so because of the sin of the first Adam, God had to shut the gates of heaven. But in the ascension we see how the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, how because of his finished work, those gates have to yield. And of course that already was already anticipated by the rending of the veil. Because the rending of the veil opened the way into the most holy place, symbolic of the dwelling place of God himself. And so here we see that what was ruined by the first Adam has been restored by the second Adam. The first Adam closed the doors of heaven. The second Adam has opened the doors into the very presence of God. And so the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ascension of Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What does that name mean again? Boys and girls, remember what that means? Emmanuel. It's very important. We find it in Matthew 1. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. When Adam and Eve sinned, sinned, God was against them. He was against them, and that's why they could no longer dwell in his presence. But because of the second Adam, because God had been against him on the, on the cross of Calvary, that's why God can now be for us. That's why God can now be with us. Oh, how precious is that name. He ascended as Emmanuel. Let's turn in your Bibles for a minute to that beautiful verse in Psalm 68. Wonderful prophecy, wonderful explanation of the ascension of Christ. Psalm 68, verse 18. There we read, Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. The picture of a conquering king who would carry his captives behind him. 
That's what Christ did. Thou hast received gifts for men. For what kind of men? Yea, for the rebellious also. That's who we are by nature. Why? That the Lord God might dwell among them. That's it. That's the picture of the tabernacle. God dwelling among his people. God dwelling in the midst of his people. And what do we read in John 1 verse 14? That the word was made flesh. And he dwelt among us. He has tabernacled among us. And now because of his ascension, his ascension, dear believer, is the warranty that God in Christ will forever dwell among his people. Forever. Because of what he accomplished. What he accomplished even for the rebellious. That's who we are by nature. That's who we are. Some of us are more sophisticated rebels. Some of us are more blatant rebels. But by nature, we are all rebels. We rebel against God. We rebel against his word. We are enemies. We are hostile to God by nature. That's the amazing thing about redemption. He died for enemies. Not for friends, but for enemies. He died for men and women who by nature have no use for God. For such people, he gave himself. And his ascension is our warranty that he has secured all the gifts that are needed to redeem rebels like us. So that rebels can be reconciled with God. That rebels can be restored into God's favor. So that rebels will be made willing in the day of God's power. So ascension means that God's good pleasure has been accomplished. Everything that was ruined by sin has been restored by Christ. Everything. Not only has he removed our sins and transgressions. That's the negative part. No, his ascension means he has restored us to where we were in Adam before we fell. Restored us into the presence of God. He has restored us into the very favor of God. Now he is there as our representative. Now he is there as our active mediator, actively engaged. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ is entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Those two words, for us, occur so many times in the New Testament. They are so essential. Such an essential part of the gospel. That means on our behalf, in our place. He appears there for us as our exalted mediator. What does he do there? Hebrews 7.25, he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And that's why the apostle says in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore, because we now have this exalted Christ at the Father's right hand, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, the apostle is saying, Christ in heaven at the Father's right hand is our warranty that that door is always open. Always. 
always, day and night. Never will we ever knock in vain. And the reason that door is open and that door stays open is because of his merits. Not because of anything in us. That's why even when we fail, when we sin, and we do grievously at times. That's why John says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is the propitiation for our sins. And there he reigns. And there he sees to it, dear believer. Not only, it's not only because of his power that you became a recipient of God's grace. No, as your interceding high priest, he preserves you in that grace. Do you know that it were, if it were not for his intercession as our, as our ascended Christ, you would still perish. You would still fall away. But in his intercession, as the exalted mediator who, who made demand of his father that his people be blessed based on his merits, That's what John meant. He is our propitiation. He has accomplished it all. And therefore, even when we fail, even when we sin, when we stumble, when we backslide, that door never goes shut. That's an open door. That door has been opened by his blood. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he reigns, of course, as king. As the victorious king, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me, Christ said. And he's reigning, even amidst all the confusion here below. All that conspires against his kingdom. Yet, Psalm 2 says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That happened on Ascension Day. On Ascension Day, the Father set his king upon his holy hill. And God's agenda will be accomplished. His purpose will succeed in spite of all that conspires against it. What a comfort that is for us today. As a matter of fact, how can you explain that the church of Christ still exists? I remember clearly my dear father preaching an Ascension Day sermon, making this statement. He said, what proof do we have of the Ascension of Christ? He said, the uninterrupted and continued existence of the church of Jesus Christ. He said, how else can you explain that that church still exists, that that church still flourishes, except that we have an exalted Christ to whom all power in heaven and earth is given and who has seen to it that in spite of all Satan's stratagems, in spite of all persecution, that his church has been preserved until this very hour. And so in a very real sense, we are today the beneficiaries of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, this amazing promise. What happens? As these men are, keep staring, you can imagine what a sight that must have been. What an extra, overwhelming sight that must have been. To see their master ascend in glorious majesty, hearing the trumpets, the shouting of the angels. can imagine, no wonder they, they stood there, just gazing, gazing into the heavens. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. 
two angels. Some commentators say maybe the same two angels that were by the grave. Who knows? Why the peril? That tells us they were not ordinary men. They were angels. Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? What a beautiful moment this is, congregation. What a beautiful moment. You know what this tells us? That the first thing Jesus did, because you can imagine, he is the master of time and distance. So in that sense, don't think that he had to travel light years to get to heaven. The first thing he does, he sends two of his messengers to comfort those men who could not take their eyes off of heaven. And why not? Why not? Ah, you see, their eyes were focused, not just on the clouds, but their eyes were on that Savior. Oh, he was so very much alive and well in their hearts. And Jesus knew that at this critical moment when he left them physically, that they needed a special word of comfort. And so the angels come with a message that is precisely suited for them. First of all, a humbling message. Ye men of Galilee, don't forget who you once were, ye men of Galilee. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, that was not a very good credential to be a man of Galilee. Just to remind them, that Christ called them to be his witnesses, not because of any special qualifications in them, but because of his sovereign distinguishing mercy. And the more we remember who we once were, the more we will marvel at the grace of God glorified in our lives. Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven. Oh, they knew the answer to their question. Just like they knew why these women had come to the grave. We know that you seek Jesus. We could say these men were preoccupied with their master. Their hearts were full of their master. Even though they could not see him physically anymore. And how sweet it is that the exalted Christ cared for these men. And dear believer, this is your Savior at the Father's right hand. He knows your name. He knows your address. He knows where you live. He knows all of your struggles. He knows your circumstances. He knows all of it. And he will, that same Jesus, think of all the times that you were comforted by his word, comforted under the preaching of his word, comforted at his table, that's the ministry of the same Christ, the same Jesus, who will see to it that your needs are met, just like he saw to it that the needs of these men were met. And then these wonderful words, this same Jesus, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. You know what this tells us? That will be his name forever. Forever. His name will be Jesus. Forever. God's redeemed people will interact with that 
same Jesus. And what a comfort that is, congregation. What a comfort, dear believer. The Jesus you will once meet is the Jesus that you have gotten to know here. It's the Jesus who has become precious to your soul. It's the Jesus whom you have seen by faith. The Jesus whose body you have eaten, whose blood you have drank. That Jesus that has become for your, for your soul the altogether lovely one and the chiefest among 10,000, that's the Jesus who will come back. That's the Jesus. You will not meet a stranger. You will meet a Jesus that you have met here. Oh, that's what they said. This same Jesus, this same Jesus, he will so come in like manner. Turn with me for a moment to John 14, where Christ promised that to his disciples. John 14, verses 2 and 3. John 14, verses 2 and 3. Listen to these wonderful words. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And dear believer, that's what he has done. He has gone to prepare a place for you. There's a mansion for you. There's a reservation in heaven with your name on it. A reservation that cannot be canceled. A reservation that is secured by his credit, not yours. His credit, his precious blood. And he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Listen to this. And receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's heaven, you see. That's heaven. That's what Rutherford meant. That's heaven's heaven to be where he is. And we know that Jesus prayed for that. He said, Father... I pray that those whom thou hast given me, that they may be where I am, that they may behold my glory. And Jesus said, I will come for you. I will come for you. Dear believer, he will come for you at the right moment. I never forget that my first mother-in-law told me the story of her grandmother. It was a dear God-fearing lady. In, in Prosser Park, New Jersey. She became ill. She could not communicate too well anymore. But her daughter was there. Her youngest daughter was there. And suddenly, she became lively. And she said, there he comes. There he comes. There he comes. He was coming for her. And he will come for you. Ah, that same Jesus. Oh, what a comfort. What a comfort that is for those who know him. For all those who love him in sincerity. Of whom Paul says unto them that look for him. And tell me, dear child of God, is that not your story? You're always looking for him. Looking for him. When you read your Bible, when you come to church next Sunday, this Sunday. Why do you come to the table? Just to sit at the table? No, looking for him. The table is about him. Come and do this in remembrance of me. Ah, to them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Oh, what a comfort for all those 
What a beautiful description of the disciples here. Gazing into heaven. Ah, you could say, that's the believer. A believer gazes upon Christ. Not as often as we should. But the more we gaze upon him, the more beautiful and the more precious he becomes. And the more we begin to pray with the church of all ages, come Lord Jesus, oh, come quickly. And that promise will be fulfilled. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16 we read, For the Lord himself shall be sent from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. What a, what a day of unspeakable joy that will be for all those who love this Christ now in sincerity. What a dreadful day it will be for his enemies. Then the, the heavens will seek to flee away when he comes in his glory and in his majesty. There will not be a single unbeliever left in that day. All men will bow the knee. All men will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But woe unto them for whom it is the first time. If that's the first time, it's too late. Hell will be filled with men and women who will no longer deny that God is real, but they've all believed it too late. And that's why we need to seek him now. That's why we need to kiss the Son. We need to kiss Christ. We need to come to Him while He still proffers peace and pardon. And so, dear believer, what comfort there is in the ascension of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Hebrews 4, 14, with which I want to close. Seeing then, that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how can we begin to thank Thee for the unspeakable gift of Thy Son, who not only was delivered for our offenses, and raised again for our justification. But who has victoriously ascended on high. To restore us into thy favor. Into thy presence. And into thy fellowship and communion. A savior in whom we are represented. In whom we are seated in heavenly places. A savior who as our advocate. Ever lives to make intercession for us. Who will come again to bring home all those for whom he gave himself in the fullness of time. Lord, may that comfort our hearts. May that strengthen our faith. And may we indeed focus on him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And let us hold fast our profession. And should there be any who do not know him, oh, that thou wouldst use Thy power, the power of the exalted Christ, to conquer such hearts even today. Go with us to our homes. Gather with us to again this coming Lord's Day. 
We ask it alone in Jesus' name. Amen.